Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your other host, Harless. We both work inside Wizards on Magic the Gathering. And though we aren't on the world building team, we work with the people who are. This is the podcast where we recap Magic Story and add a bit of our own flavor. Today is an exciting day. We are starting season two, which focuses on the story of the Brothers War. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So for those of you who are tuning in after listening to season one, welcome back. We're structuring our podcast a little bit differently for season two. After all, the Brothers War story is pretty unique. For season one, which was Dominaria United's story, we followed one timeline, which told the story of Karn, Joda, Jaya, Teferi, and Ajani in Dominaria at the very start of the war against a biomechanical nemesis, the Phyrexians. Now, if you remember, Shieldred had led an initial invasion into Dominaria, and a lot happened in the finale. Ajani turned out to be a sleeper agent, Karn was taken by Phyrexians, and Jaya was killed. But ultimately, Joira was able to self-destruct the mana rig and destroy Shieldred, or so we're led to believe. The Brothers' War strikes quite a different tone right from the start. And there are actually two timelines we'll be following throughout the season. One timeline, called Track 1, takes place 4,000 years prior to the events of Dominaria United. Instead, we follow our main character, Kayla Ben Krug, queen of a land called Penregan, just after the event called the Brothers' War. Now, meanwhile, the second timeline of Season 2, called Track 2, picks up right where Dominaria United left off in the present day. And for this season, we will be following mostly our primary narrator, Planeswalker, Teferi, as he tries to solve the mystery of the past in order to save Dominaria from the Phyrexians. I know a lot of you are wondering what our planeswalkers are up to, especially Teferi. After all, he had stepped inside Urza's tower right at the end of season one, and we had no idea what he was truly up to. Only that he was about to break all the vows he swore not to do about his own time travel power. Dominaria is in full-out war against the Phyrexians, and the stakes are high. We've lost quite a few of our favorite characters in all of magic already. But first, Let's go back in time, 4,000 years back in time, and dive into track one, episode one of The Brothers War, called The End, Part One, written by our very own Miguel Lopez. The episode begins in a land called Pendragon. It's snowing. Imagine a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Riddled with dead machines and battered fields, decimated cities and an empty sort of quiet. This is Pentagon just after the war that ended the world. It's clear that we are immediately brought back 4,000 years to see the wake of an event called the Brothers' War. And this war had literally changed the land. Snow had never fallen in Pentagon before. But in this apocalyptic-like landscape, even the climate had changed due to the destruction of the war. This war is even referenced as the Cataclysm. I said before that the Brothers War story strikes a very different tone than Dominaria United. It's clear from the very first paragraph. The descriptions are more somber, the content more serious, and even the writing style reads grittier with elevated, precise language. If I had to place a genre for Dominaria United, it would be high fantasy. The classic, whimsical, bright colors and style, but the Brothers War... It reads like Dark Ages fantasy, the epic medieval style, almost gothic in its 
feeling. I imagine these scenes as I read them to be awash in dark lighting and cryptic, somber music. Caleb and Krug sits in the government house of Penrigan. She is the queen regent of Penrigan after the war, and she just so happens to be Urza's widow. Now, if you remember from season one, Urza is actually Karn's creator and was one of Teferi's mentors. When we are first introduced to Kayla, it's about five years after the end of the war. Civilizations are struggling to rebuild, and Kayla is one of the last noble leaders to help the people prevail. She's incredibly strong, a determined and brave woman of color, as well as a natural leader who cares very much about the safety of her people. But it's also clear she had lost nearly everything because of the war. There's a hardness to her, too. Whenever she's illustrated, she appears in regal-like white robes accentuated by colorful layers, illuminated in light and gold. So Kayla is speaking with an artificer named Thanos. He's a veteran scholar, one who actually worked with Urza on the machine designs. The world right after the events of the Brothers' War has an interesting irony, a paradox of sorts. Machines were the cause of the utter destruction of the world in the Brothers' War. The cataclysm, the Brothers' War, was literally a war of machines pitted against each other and completely obliterated civilizations in the aftermath. The world was starving because of machines. And yet... Kayla and her people need machines in order to rebuild now. Docile machines, designs constructed for the good of the people that can help them rebuild walls and sow the fields. This is what Thanos offers her. Urza's old machine designs, constructs not made for war, but for peace and prosperity. No weapons, only tools, Thanos said. We can use the stones to power automatons that will help us mine and harvest. We can use them to light the city at night, or power heaters to keep the cold at bay. Thanos leaned forward, reaching towards Kayla. We could rebuild Pendragon. Now Kayla is obviously nervous about it. She is witnessing the aftermath of Urza's, her own husband's, callousness. His war machine so destructive, it literally caused the death of entire civilizations. There's a moment here, though, that Thanos tries to sway her. He says that Urza wanted to relay a message to her from long ago. Remember me not as I was, but as I wanted to be. I wonder, perhaps, if Urza, maybe deep down, did want to do good, make good things, but it all went awry somehow, a darker direction we're not given insight into. That's a good insight, Harless. Like, from what I can gather about Urza so far, and we're learning about Urza as we are reading this story, right? He's obviously a genius artificer. I mean, he's literally yeah. crafted the world's greatest and most terrible machines and designs. He also created Karn. You know, if you remember our planeswalker hero from season one, Karn is Urza's creation. But we also picked up on the fact last season that Karn was not always treated well by his creator. Urza was cruel. In fact, it's he's a meanie. Yeah, he's a meanie, right? It's one of the <laughs> he most, really is, right? It's one of the most painful things Karn reminisces on is his treatment from his creator. And he harbors this resentment towards him. So Urza is a bit of a familiar dichotomy, right? Like a classic villain trope. Urza is incredibly gifted in magic and design, and maybe he tries to do good with it, but it never turns out the way he wants it to. That in the end, Urza's idea of being a good person and his actual actions are the exact opposite. Tons of pop culture villains follow this model, too. It makes Urza much more than just a villain. He's a person, a relatable one even. And truth be told, we don't know what happened. At this point, we don't know the events that led to the Brothers' War, the Cataclysm. We haven't gotten his perspective yet. We only see it from others in the aftermath. 
Kayla, understandably, does not agree with Thanos' statement. She says, quote, My husband and his brother forced cruel choices on their people. They burned the world down because neither of them could talk to one another. I don't relish my husband's death. There has been enough death. But I am happy that he is gone, and I do not forgive him for what he did. I will not remember him as he wanted to be remembered. I will remember him as he was. And then Thanos reveals a shocking fact. Urza is still alive. Wait, what? He's alive? He's alive. But Kayla thought she was widowed years and years ago. Thanos says that Urza has, quote, become something else. Well, that's cryptic. Something else? What is else? That's Kayla's exact thoughts, too. She asks Thanos hesitantly if Urza is better now than what he was, but... Thanos admits he doesn't know. Okay, that's creepy. So Thanos is keeping something out here. I mean, knowing the events of the future, becoming something else is an eerily familiar description of what completion is. And if you remember, being completed is becoming Phyrexianized. We saw it with Ajani last season. Uh, still crying about that one. My heart's still broken. Uh, it's horrible. You know, he was no longer Ajani. Instead, he's a half-machine, half-organic avatar for Phyrexia. Is that what happened here? We don't know. It does sound familiar, though, Harless, you're right, but we're not given the answers. So after hearing this, Kayla finally agrees to use Thanos and Urza's old plans to help reconstruct the city with the help of docile machines. So after this, we jump forward in time just a little to springtime a few months later. The description of spring, to be honest, is not much happier than winter. I quote, those old battle lines, once a hellish panorama of stone, metal, and fire-stripped earth, were now oceans of grass across which sprays of delicate wildflowers bloomed. Under the flowers, the numberless dead lay unknown but never forgotten. Birds flocked, roosting in the old and decaying communications towers Urza once erected all those years ago. Near the base of the Cares and out in the marches to the south of Pendragon, Barren sores marked the earth where the worst of the war machines had died. Large, corroded hulks listed in pools of dark water, slick with horribly mutated lichens and that dripped and never froze. No songbirds made their winter homes inside these machine corpses. No beasts drank from the oil-slick water. A stink simmered the air around them, and Pendragon scouts were careful to mark a perimeter around any such remains they came across in their ranging. It's such a somber reminder that Though the seasons change, the aftermath of the Brothers' War is still the most predominant feeling. It doesn't feel lively or bright or hopeful. It, it must be how these people feel, too. Thanos has been working for months on reconstructing the outer wall of Pendragon with the help of newly built machines, what he calls civils. It's not quite done, but Kayla hears some disturbing reports that some sort of mass approaches the city from over the mountains. A mass of people, thousands upon thousands strong. Kayla's warrior captain, a man named Morel, says, It's not a professional army, but there were many dressed in armor. It is as you thought. They're organized, but not regimented. I think everyone is uneasy hearing this. I mean, I would be. After just recovering from a cataclysmic war, an approach like this would raise my suspicions. What's more, Morel reports that this regiment carries machine remains. Automaton parts. Kayla requests if Thanos can prepare the civil's machines, currently working on restructuring the wall, to also protect the city if it comes to it. So not necessarily making war machines, but kind of making a militia of sorts? I suppose so. I mean, what else can they do, right? Who knows what this marching group even wants? 
So with that, we fast forward again a bit, two months later. The snows have melted in the mountains and the marching masses approach Pendragon. The passage of people seemed endless and overwhelming. A dark-clad column winding up from the south to cross the riparian grasslands between Pendragon and the Cares. The march reminded Kayla of migrating ants, how they would form an unbroken thread of workers and warriors when traveling from Old Hive to New, the queen hidden amongst the commoners. Kayla empathized with the scout's captain's uncertainties in calling this great assembly an army or a migration. With the aid of Meryl's looking glass, Kayla saw elders and children, masses of people clad in scavenged or makeshift armor, some wearing only rags. Okay, so this sounds like a giant march of refugees. Even Kayla remarks that this is an incredibly sad realization that these people, hundreds of thousands of them, again, they thought this was an army marching towards them, had been driven from their homes because of the war. So many people just lost, like her. Yeah, seeing these people, Kayla kind of remembers who she is to the rest of the world. The, and I quote here, the living martyr, the forgotten wife of the world killer, who, in the darkness of his passing, led the survivors in carving out a sanctuary. I mean, she's obviously much more than just that. But to her people, to the rest of the world, this is who Kayla Ben Krug is. These people have clearly come to Pentagon for a reason, for sanctuary. Well, not quite. See, that's what Kayla thinks they've come for, and so she goes out to greet them. And close up, these people are even more ragged, starving, and disheveled than she realized. They aren't hostile. They aren't an army. Only a few of them wear actual armor. Most of them wave this black banner with two circles on it, the symbol of Tal, deity of the sun. One within the masses moves to the front to speak with Kayla. This man is Radic. Radic speaks about his conquest to rid the world of machines. He's completely radical about it, demonizing anything to do with machines. He asks Kayla to join them in the crusade. She denies to help, knowing she must lead her people first and foremost. Kayla does offer Penragon's aid, and allows some of the priests of Tal to remain in the city. A few days later, though, so we're going to fast forward a few days later, unrest riddles both Kayla's court and the streets of Pentagon because of these masses going into the city. Some of the priests, so some of the faithful that they had let into Pentagon, attempted to dismantle a civil. If you remember, a civil are those docile machines that Kayla and Thanos had been helping to build um, and reconstruct the city and the wall, and you name it. But obviously, they see demons in any machine, right? So these faithful attempted to dismantle it. And so the Pentagon city guard, Kayla's troops, rose to the defense of the civil, and there was accidental bloodshed over this. And some of the faithful had died in as the city guard rose up to defend the, the machine docile, the civil. Now, Radek and the crusade outside the walls hears this. They immediately go on the offensive, declaring they will cleanse Pendragon like they had other cities. And they state that, quote, it cannot be saved. Kayla mobilizes all the forces she can against Radek and the marchers. And I quote, it was the end of the world, the end of the age of artifice and machines. Come dawn, a new age would break across Terracier. So that is the end of track one, episode one. Now, remember, this season, there are two tracks. So we're going to be covering track one, episode one, and track two, episode one today. So with that, we transition back to the present time for track two, episode one of The Brothers War. This episode is titled Stronghold and is written by Reinhardt Suarez. So in track two, we follow Teferi. 
Now, he is in Urza's Tower, which is completely dilapidated. I mean, this thing has been around for a very long time and has been abandoned for a very long time, but it is still absolutely beautiful. So this tower is made of white stone and gold trim. It's super tall. It's super thin. And it has uh, what looks like a power stone at the bottom that's powering it and creating these really cool like blue lights. But for the most part, this tower is white and gold. Now, Teferi remarks that the tower is well built, a flawless design still standing only because of luck. He makes remarks on Urza too, that the artificer cared deeply about his practice, but not for the people in his life, which we kind of know that at this point. Now Teferi enters the makeshift workshop he and his fellow planeswalkers have established in the tower. There, Joda joins him. Now we learn that a handful of weeks have passed since the attack on the mana rig when we lost Ajani, Jaya, and Karn. I'm still heartbroken over that finale in season one. I can't think about a Johnny or Karn without, or Jaya without just immediately feeling so emotional. It's so devastating to lose a Johnny. A Johnny, as a Phyrexian, we, you know, we don't know at the end of the last episode, you know, they kind of shielded sort of. She somehow is able to transport or portal. We don't know how. Right, but that's, yeah. that's a new Phyrexian power that Shieldred has. Right. So we don't actually know what happened with Ajani and Shieldred. They kind of weren't in that last scene with Karn. So we don't know where they are, but I hope Ajani is okay. Um, I'm really worried for him. He's a, play he's a Phyrexian now. I mean, how do you even come back from that? You can't. Uh, there are so many emotions, so many feelings. But moving on. Yeah. Okay. And they and also are, let's remember, Teferi, Joda... Our planeswalkers now don't know what happened to Karn. He just disappeared right after the mana rig. And so they assume that he's gone. They they saw Jaya die. They saw Ajani turn into a Phyrexian. They can only assume that Karn in some capacity is also gone. They haven't seen him at all since. Exactly. So this group of planeswalkers, Teferi, Joda, etc., they mention a character named Renan Seven. And we're going to dive deeper into Renan 7 later in this episode. So stay tuned for that. And they have like a whole coalition of new planeswalker allies that have come to Urza's tower to help aid. It's clear that the Phyrexians are a threat all across the multiverse now. It's like being taken more seriously. And so we're starting to see some familiar faces and magic being able to pop up here. And Teferi is remarking that the younger planeswalkers who fought in an event called the War of the Spark are a little bit more apt to help them against the Phyrexians because they have seen war so recently and how devastating it can be. And so just a short summary for those who were not aware of War of the Spark. War of the Spark was the last major event that happened on Ravnica a few years ago in, in Magic release sets. It came out in 2019. And basically our, our familiar planeswalkers such as Teferi and, and Kaya that you're about to meet in just a minute... They all fought against a, a necromantic dragon named Nicobolas, and he almost brought the end of Ravnica, right? Like he he had made some significant damage on on our planeswalker friends back in the War of the Spark. <laughs> to put it to put it mildly, right? So yeah, put it. That's definitely putting it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you haven't checked out War of the Spark, there's like tons that you can read up on on War of the Spark if you want to go back and read it. But the younger planeswalkers who fought in that war a few years ago, right, are definitely going to be more apt to uh, to take threats seriously, which is why they're kind of rallied here and 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 heeding the call of Teferi and Joda to say that this needs to be taken seriously. Which, if you'll remember, in season one was like the biggest struggle was getting people to just understand there's a threat and we have to do something about it. So these younger planeswalkers who, again, as Natalie mentioned, have seen recent war, have seen 
how easily the tides of the multiverse can turn are here because they know. They know that they have to be here, that they have to fight, that they have to do something about this threat. Exactly. And the most valuable of these planeswalker friends that Teferi has on his side right now, one of them is Sahili. I love Sahili so much. <laughs> and Sahili, she is just in, in top level. Sahili is a master she, artificer. She is her, a, um, as she appears on magic cards and, and throughout powers. magic. She has this warm sienna skin tone. She wears these blue and red mage robes, and she specializes in metal artificing. And she's close friends with many of our established Planeswalker friends in Magic. Um, she also fought in the War of the Spark against Nicol Bolas, and she had remained in Ravnica after that war. So this is the first time we're seeing her since that war. And the other most important Planeswalker that Teferi has on his side right now is Kaya. Kaya! Like, Kaya is probably the one of the, if not the most iconic magic character that we have, period. Like, she she is so cool. I love Kaya. Yeah, Kaya is amazing. So Kaya is known as the ghost assassin. She is one of the most famous planeswalkers in all of magic. You can usually find her slaying ghosts. Um, she's confident. She's, like, got this, like, really rogue style um, of fighting. She's a duelist, so she always has this pair of pink glowing daggers in her hands. And as someone who plays a lot of D&D as a rogue, I just absolutely love her build. I've actually... I have used that build um, in my own D&D campaign and it's super fun because she's just super roguish, but she has the ability to shed her solid form, which of course is super helpful for any rogue. Now, Kaya did Bolas's bidding for a while before turning against him in The War of the Spark. And most recently we saw her on Kaldheim when, where she was hired to hunt down a dangerous monster wreaking havoc on the plane. And this monster, of course, turned out to be Vornklex, which is a Phyrexian praetor. Back in the tower, Teferi explains that they are working on some sort of really complicated time mechanism. And once it's complete, Teferi will be indisposed while operating it. And so he asked Joda to lead this group of planeswalkers here while Teferi will be part of this time machine. And Joda agrees. He decides that he, he will step in as leader when Teferi can't be. We enter a war room where many of our planeswalkers have gathered. Here, a planeswalker named Elspeth confronts Teferi. Where is a Johnny, she asks. It's clear the loss of a Johnny cuts her deep. So let's talk about Elspeth for a minute. Elspeth actually supposedly died on Theros, but she came back because she is that cool. Most recently, she was on Nuka Pinna with Vivian, and she is quite a serious character. She has some like scales around her, like she's kind of got her armor up, but she's incredibly brave. And most often you can see her at the front of a battlefield or fighting for the good of the multiverse. She has a heart of gold, but she's been through a lot. And the news of a Johnny... It just absolutely wrecks her. They were so close, her and Johnny, like the closest of friends. And Elspeth has been through so much that that's where her aloofness comes from. She can distance herself to not feel so heavily on the losses that she's endured. So you can visibly see it within sentences of each other that she finds out what happens to Johnny. Teferi reveals what happened on the mana rig and Johnny was revealed to be Phyrexianized. And Elspeth just immediately grows distant. She pulls away and she actually leaves the tower, not saying anything. And so that's like, that's that's Elspeth's kind of complicated emotions. She's just been through so much that she doesn't want to get hurt again. And it's understandable. How can you compartmentalize that much death and loss? Exactly. You can't. Exactly. Yeah. So Kaya advises Teferi to just let Elspeth go. And so Kaya, Teferi, and the others remark on their current alliance. In summary, numerous other planes across the multiverse have now mobilized to help them. 
and we get the sense that the Phyrexian threat is wide-reaching and imminent to everyone. Vivian is here as well. She is a welcome sight to these other planeswalkers, and she actually brings intel on what the Phyrexians are up to. She reveals that New Phyrexia has been united under Elish Norn. And I quote here, Urabrask didn't give specifics, but he was concerned about some way that Elish Norn may have to force her one singularity throughout New Phyrexia, and more importantly, the multiverse. She plans to expand her dominion all at once. Now, Elish Norn, that's the Praetor we saw with Karn at the end of season one, uh, after Shieldred had like transported them he kind of wakes up in this room and Elish Norn is there. Yeah, we saw her for just that split second, right? So, okay, holy moly, uh, that's bad news. <laughs> Elish Norn is our big bad, apparently. Like, she has been working to basically spread her influence. And, and this is like a massive revelation, right? Of, of realizing that Elish Norn has a plan to... She wants the entire multiverse to be under her dominion. She wants, and if you remember the way Phyrexians work is that they kind of have a one singularity mindset, right? Where it's all about Phyrexia, glory to Phyrexia, right? And once you become Phyrexian, you don't care about who you were or what you were. It's all about Phyrexia, right? And so if she's able to spread that influence, basically everyone would be Phyrexianized. That is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. So before we get too far, let's talk about Vivian for just a second, because this is the first time we're mentioning her in the podcast. And Vivian is another very iconic magic character, if only because of her looks. Oh my gosh, her look is amazing. So Vivian is a green aligned archer. She is a black woman. She's seasoned and strong. She has these like druidic spirit powers. Most recently, she was seen helping Elspeth on New Capenna, and she happens to have insider knowledge of the Phyrexians thanks to Urabrask, who is a Phyrexian insider. Now, Kaya realizes at this moment why Vorinclex, another Praetor, was on Kaldheim. She tells the other planeswalkers about the world tree that lives on that plane, and they all come to the same conclusion, that Elish Norn intends to use the world tree as a means to spread her influence all over the multiverse. So... That might explain how Phyrexians are able to do things now that they couldn't before, like how Shieldred managed to go to Dominaria last season. It's because the Phyrexians have the power of the world tree. So here's a quote. If the Phyrexians had somehow replicated or repurposed Kaldheim's world tree, it could conceivably join every plane in the multiverse. With it in place, the Phyrexians could be anywhere, at any time, at the speed of thought. They didn't just have to worry about secret infiltrations like on Dominaria. The Phyrexians could march their armies indirectly. By now, whatever Urabrask had planned is only days away from happening. If we're going to make a move, it must happen very soon. So with this information, our Planeswalker friends are all very much on edge, as they should be, right? And they deliberate whether they should trust a Phyrexian spy like Urabrask to be truthful about this, right? And they're even less inclined to take Urabrask at his word when Vivian reveals that the intermediary of this hasty alliance of sorts was none other than Tezzeret. Okay, Tezzeret, that name is uh, familiar to me, but as a baddie, so what? 
This is weird. Tezzeret is a complicated character in Magic's history. In short, he's an artificer and a henchman of Nicol Bolas. And most recently, he had allied himself with the Phyrexians, as we had seen in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, which was the most recent set that he appeared in in early 2022. Most significantly, though, is that during the War of the Spark, Tezzeret had taken something called the Planar Bridge and infused it into his body. The Planar Bridge is an incredibly powerful artifact that can transport non-living matter through the blind eternities. When Tezzeret did this, it ate away at him one bit at a time. Now, Tezzeret was already a half-organic, half-cyborg-like, incredibly powerful creature, but Tezzeret has had a rough time of it, to put it mildly. And the Planar Bridge was kind of like the nail in the coffin for Tezzeret. He became very, very powerful when he infused himself with it, but at a cost. Okay, so the fact that Tezzeret has the Planar Bridge within him and has proven himself untrustworthy in practically every major war our planeswalkers have fought him in, he doesn't strike the group as an ally. However, the war group are in no position to turn down an advantage, even if it's risky. So they split up to find out more and agree to let things pan out. Now, after the war group disbanded, Teferi checks up on Sahili in her workshop. Turns out, she is so skilled at artificing that she had made a perfect replica of the Silex. And, oh, I love Sahili so much. She basically, not only does she do this perfectly, does she recreate it, she adds her own flair. And what I mean by that is that Sahili is obsessed with beauty. She feels like, if I'm going to create these objects, why not make them beautiful? And that's just one of the ways that she is an absolutely outstanding artificer. So, and I quote here, her version featured the same heavy handles on both sides. The same shallow bas-relief depictions of farmers armed with scythes facing down a troop of armored knights. Identical runes, a master translation between several ancient languages, spiraled downward from the inner edges of the bowl to the very bottom. She was also working on a temporal anchor, which is just a fancy name for time machine. So by using the power source of the weatherlight, the airship our coalition lost last season to the Phyrexians, another big sad. Oh, Teferi even remarks on that too. Like he says he can't think of the weatherlight without thinking of that moment that it was turned into this Phyrexian kind of warship with just this sad, heavy heart, right? It was such a major yeah. loss last season to lose the weatherlight. Yeah, Teferi says it makes him, it basically makes him sick to his stomach. And I understand it's a symbol of hope and it's been Phyrexianized, which is like taking the sun and just hitting it with a hammer a whole bunch and then putting some metal screws in it. I mean, it's not great. Now, at this point, Sahili gives Teferi an artificed golden bird companion, which is absolutely beautiful and tells him that the temporal anchor will be ready to use by tonight so no big deal she's just making a time machine y'all like a perfect replica of the silex with her own added beautiful filigree check absolutely perfect time machine that will get to ferry where he's going check and she throws in a beautiful companion bird because why not? Because why not? Because it's Sahili. And like, you're starting to see who Sahili is. For those of you listening out there, you're going to get to know Sahili really well throughout this season. She's just like, she's an incredible character that we're going to be able to see shine in, in the Brothers War in, in track two. And this is just one, this is just our introduction to Sahili. So while he's waiting for the time machine to be completed, Teferi steps outside the tower into the nearby forests. And he spends some time reminiscing about the irony of growing old while being a time mage. You know, he's talking about feeling aches and pains. Um, there was a time when he was desparked, And during this time, he basically was able to feel 
to kind of age and, and to feel these pains. And now he was re-sparked, so he's able to, to use his magic again. But he still has those aches and pains, and he's just sitting there lamenting the irony of it all. And during this, he's approached by his friend, Ren and Seven. So we mentioned Ren and Seven earlier in the episode, right? And Ren and Seven is actually a really good recent friend of Teferi's. And Ren and Seven is a planeswalker dryad. And Ren and Seven are actually two different entities, which I'm going to explain in just a second. So Ren is very pale, extremely tall with this ghostly white hair. And most often she takes the form of this half tree sort of humanoid shape. And this is because... Long ago, she merged herself with the glowing red fire magic that is her spirit light within her chest. And she can then use that and merge with tree folk to become whole. And it's like a symbiotic relationship with the trees that she resides in. The tree's voice and sight is activated through Ren, and the tree gets to explore through the multiverse. So Ren is able to come into full power with the help of the tree that she merges herself with. And most recently that we had seen Ren, she was with Six. But Six has since been let go to live out peacefully the rest of its days as an old oak. And Ren has now befriended Seven, who is a very eager and young, excited sapling to see the multiverse. And they were actually introduced and were able to become whole together thanks to Teferi. And so that's where Ren and Seven actually met Teferi is they, it, long story short, Teferi helped through his time magic be able to have Ren and Seven be able to meet and they both survived because of Teferi. So Ren obviously uh, is very close friends with Teferi and vice versa. And Ren is wise. Uh, she speaks very calmly and she can actually read other people's songs based off of their mood. And she actually comes up to Teferi and reflects that, Teferi, your song seems somber today, you know? And so she's actually able to read people's moods because of their songs within them, which is actually really cool. Ren Ren is a fantastic character, and I absolutely love her. Yeah, and so maybe because of this, because of the calm nature of them, because of the openness and the ability to read his song, Teferi does this rare thing and confides in Ren and Seven about his past, all of his past. He says he's just like Urza, that he sacrificed so much in order to save Zalfir, his homeland, and that in the end, he follows in Urza's footsteps, for better or worse. He sees himself as a criminal. In Ren's response, I am not here to provide you absolution, mage. Your crimes are your own, and you will answer for them in time. Ultimately, you are not important. Neither am I. I am here to play my part in the symphony. And now Ren leaves right as Elspeth appears in the woods. Teferi and Elspeth don't know each other very well, but they begin to in this conversation. They speak of a Johnny that Teferi didn't know, that even a Johnny didn't know that he was Phyrexianized. And based off Elspeth's reactions, she's far from forgiving Teferi or anyone for what happened to a Johnny. And here... Teferi has a moment of doubt whether he's fit to lead, right? He's been kind of assumed leader of this new coalition of planeswalkers as they fight against the Phyrexians, right? Karn was that in the previous season, and now Teferi has to step up to the plate. And he doubts himself. He wonders if his leadership qualities are Urza's teachings instilled into him. And he actually questions himself with this quote, who was the true Teferi? Was it Teferi, mage of Zalfir, who pledged to defend his home no matter the cost? Was it Teferi, master of time, the elitist, nigh-omnipotent planeswalker, who thought everyone should simply get in line and follow? Or was it Teferi, the disruptive student, who used cruel humor to obscure his own fears, that no one would ever understand him, 
and no one would ever consider him a friend. That's so relatable. Yeah. yeah. Like I love that. Teferi just he he knows that he wasn't always a good person, right? He he knows yeah. that he has made mistakes in his past and he is reconciling for them now. But man, Teferi is so human, right? In in this moment where we all there's good and bad in all of us, right? No one is ever perfect. And we've all made mistakes. Yeah. And like we all have regrets and we all made mistakes and we all realize that over time, right? Like where Teferi's kind of reminiscing that he's getting older, right? <laughs> as, as a time mage. And it's well, like, and as you get older as a human too, you realize that things that you did not think were mistakes at the time were in fact mistakes or perhaps harmed another person in a way that you did not intend for that to happen. But we all have this. And so for Teferi to take this moment of, do I deserve to lead knowing I've made mistakes is so to me, is proof that he does deserve to lead. To me, exactly. is, is showing that yeah. he know, he is aware of his flaws and can therefore manage them. Yeah, no, that's a really important quality in Teferi. And probably why he's assumed leader, right, is because he understands his own weaknesses and he understands, and see, to me, Teferi draws connections to himself and Urza, right? Like, of course, there are yes. some similarities, but probably the most significant difference is that Teferi is aware of how cruel Urza was and how he does not he want apologized. to. He yeah, apologized. He does not want he to. He apologized to Karn last episode or last season. Yep. He apologized to Karn for viewing him as just a thing. So not only is he aware of his mistakes, he apologizes for them and he tries to correct them. And is that not the complete opposite of Urza who just pushed forward with whatever it, it was almost an ends versus an uh, it's justifies the means kind of situation for Urza where like it didn't matter how bad it was as long as he was going to win. And that's kind of the opposite of Teferi. Teferi also we've seen here in Ren and Seven, he brings people together. And that that is perhaps the most important quality in a leader. Yeah. So Teferi changes tactics with Elspeth. Instead of being confident, he reminisces about his daughter, that he doesn't fight against the Phyrexians to be victorious, but to try and pave a light for his daughter to live in. Ultimately, Elspeth says Teferi will need a protector when the Phyrexians inevitably find them in Urza's tower, and she has joined their coalition as that protector. Yay, Elspeth! <laughs> Yay, Elspeth. I, I love it. I, so, okay, so to recap, we now have... Ren and Seven, we have Elspeth, we have Kaya, we have... We have Sahili. Sahili. We have... Vivian. Vivian. Oh my gosh, Vivian. I mean, that's already just like this powerhouse of young planeswalkers that are taking this threat seriously. And how much of a mirror is that into current, into, into any society where the young people are able to recognize things sooner sometimes than older generations. I just think that's really interesting how it's laid out here. Yeah, um, they're stepping up to the plate. You know, these these young yeah. planes, planeswalkers who fought against Nicol Bolas a few years ago, right? They're stepping up to the plate and realizing that it's up to them to save the multiverse now. They have to fight against these Phyrexians that were just a legend in history books, right? And everyone thought were destroyed until Karn proved that they were all wrong. and And now here they are. It just shows how powerful the Phyrexians are this time around. Like, the Phyrexians aren't Nicobolas. As as terrifying as Nicobolas was, and the War of the Spark was definitely devastating, right, in its in its own way, this is on a whole nother level. Yeah. We've never seen stakes as high as this before, at, at least from, from my experience. Like, it's just, this this feels so much scarier. Like, I'm actually scared, genuinely scared for the longevity of 
been any of these planeswalkers for like the first time. Yeah. I'm I'm actually wondering whether they're actually going to be able to fix this because let's remember that according to history, right? According to Dominarian history, there was only one planeswalker who vanquished the Phyrexians and that was Urza. And now that we know who Urza was and the cost that it took when, when we were in track one, the cost of vanquishing the Phyrexians with all of those war machines literally decimated the plane. And it makes me wonder, right, over what's going to happen to these planeswalkers that we know and love now in order to vanquish these Phyrexians. It's like none of them are Urza, and I'm glad none of them are Urza, but what's going to be the cost? We've already seen such heavy toll on in, in season one. I I'm scared on finding out what's going to happen in the future. I know. I know this is an arc, right? And we're in part two. And with everything that happened in part one, I'm nervous too. Like this episode was very cozy. This episode felt very safe. Everyone's in this tower that nobody really knows about. The only reason it's not been, you know, pillaged is because it's kind of hidden. Uh, and like Teferi said, just sheer luck. Um, so they're well hidden. But I have a feeling. I have a feeling it's about to get real. This definitely feels like the aftermath of what happened for Dominaria United. And our planeswalkers are trying to recollect how to move forward. And how cool that they juxtapose that with the the aftermath of the Brothers War. Yeah. I'm so excited with how they've, they've planned these tracks out. I can't wait to share more with you. As always, you can read this episode for yourself at mtgstory.com. This has been just the beginning of our story on the Brothers War, so stay tuned for more in the next episode and have, have a, a magical, magical day. day.